if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we ask this morning that by the power of your Spirit, the author of your word, that you would make your word clear to us, that you would reach our hearts with your word, and that we would not merely know more, but that we would be affected, that our hearts would be affected, that our wills would be affected, that we would seek to do your will, to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, and to love you more and more. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. You don't need me to tell you this morning that there is a lack of peace in the world. If you have been watching news stories on television or reading them in articles, you will see that much of the world is engulfed in warlike actions. There are conflicts among nations. There are conflicts within nations. There are conflicts in our communities and even in our families. We know that we lack peace. And yet the more important question then that comes to us is, how can we get peace? If we know we need peace, and we see that it is not before us, how can we get peace? The Apostle Paul this morning is going to explain to us with clarity what it means to find and have peace. And in spite of all of the methods, in spite of all of the writings, all of the ideas throughout the world, there is only one way to peace. And that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, Paul is helping us by telling us how we can find peace, and in the midst of this, he is encouraging us to lift up the Lord Jesus, to look to Jesus first, knowing that peace will follow. This morning, I'd like us to see three things about peace from our text. The first is that we need peace. 
The second is that it is Christ who brings peace. And the third is a reminder to us that it is Christ who is our peace. We need peace. It is Christ who brings peace because Christ is our peace. Let's begin then looking at our need for peace. So this passage is all about peace. You see it throughout all of the verses. Paul says that Christ himself is our peace. Paul speaks about bringing people together. He speaks about being reconciled to God by Christ. About being close to God. All that is in this passage is what happens when we have peace. But the interesting thing is, as Paul describes this for us, we then realize that Paul is presuming that we are not at peace apart from Christ. The passage starts with a little word, for. For Christ himself is our peace. And when we ask ourselves the question then, why is Christ our peace? we would do well to simply glance back up through the previous portion of the chapter. Paul has told us that we are separated apart from Christ. We are separated not only from Christ, but we are separated from the people of God. We are far off from God. Paul has told us that apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are filled with an unrest a wandering, a need to be solid and safe. We were following a way that was against the way of God. He tells us this in verse 2. He says, we walked according to the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We went and followed the course of the world, a course of the world that is filled with hatred and pain and sin. You see, this world is not as it ought to be. This world is not natural anymore. You see, sometimes we refer to natural phenomenon, but they really are not natural. It is not natural to God's creation to have death and sickness and storms and tempests. It is not natural in God's creation to mourn and lament those that we have lost. You see, we realize this even in our gut. We have an innate sense of right, don't we? It's the reason why when you turn on your television and you hear a report of a madman driving a truck along a mile of a South France town to kill men, women, and children, we are outraged. Because that shouldn't happen. That's not what it's supposed to be. I watch news anchors with near tears in their eyes describe how some of the dead are children and that should never be. You see, we have an innate sense of what is right. That is because of the creation of this world by our Heavenly Father. We see the creation itself groaning under the effects of sin. Paul tells us this in Romans 8. 
You see, all around us, we see injustice, we see pain, we see heartache, and we do not want to acknowledge that, well, that's just the way things are. Do we? When you experience heartache and sickness and death, would you consider it an appropriate answer for someone to walk up to you and say, well, forget about it, that's just the way of the world. No, that's not the way the world should be, right? But that's the way the world is because of sin. You see, we wonder what the purpose of life is. We hate the idea of sickness and death. And what we need to hear is that sin is the cause. Paul takes us back right to the very beginnings of the scriptures, to the beginning of Genesis. Now, just as an aside, as we think about our need for peace and pain in our life, don't ever let someone tell you that Genesis is just a bunch of fairy tales. Or that it's not important. All we need is the New Testament and Paul. Because you see, we can't understand the glories that Paul describes for us unless we first understand the depths that we have fallen to in the beginning of Genesis. It would be one thing if I told you that I raised someone up one foot off the ground. You would think, well, that's not much of a big deal. But if I told you they're one foot off the ground after having been a thousand feet under the earth, then you would be more impressed with the change. So we have to understand the depth that we have fallen to because of sin. You see... In the garden, there was harmony. There was peace. At that time, all was well. We see even an example of this in Adam as he calls the animals to him and he names them one by one. We see a perfect harmony and peace amongst all of the creatures. Do we see that now? Now a child falls into a pen of a gorilla and the zookeepers need to kill the gorilla because they are afraid that swiftly and violently the gorilla will attack and destroy peace. It's just one example of it. But back in the garden with Adam, all was peaceful, all was right, all was harmonious until sin entered the picture. You see... Sin at its core is pride. No matter what you think sin is, there is an element of pride in sin. Because you see, the core of sin is that we want to be independent of God. We want to be able to shut out God at our own desires. We want to ignore what the perfect, wise creator says is best and good. We want to always be in control and to be our own people. And should it surprise us that this causes pain and suffering and misery? Have you ever had this experience with your children? As they're trying to perform a task, perhaps cooking for the first time, or working in the yard or trying to build something, and you come alongside them and you want to give them advice on how this should be done. And they say, Don't tell me, I know how to do this. Now, you absolutely know there is no way they know how to do this. 
but they just want to be able to say they know how to do it. They want to be independent. And then things fall apart. You see, young people, when parents tell you what to do and describe all of the risks that you don't want to hear, what you have to understand is they are simply trying to pass on to you the benefits of experience. Of all of the failures that they have experienced, all of the times that they have messed up, trying to spare you from it. But you see, in a cosmic way, that is how we treat God, as if God somehow does not have the authority to speak to us, is not over us, that we know better than the eternal, almighty, all-wise God. How foolish. But you see, there's even another problem that flows from this. It is bad enough for us to set ourselves up as God, to ignore Him, to be separated from Him. But what begins with God spills over into the rest of our life. Each of us has our own pride. Each of us wants our own kingdom. But I have a secret for you. You are not alone. There are others around you in the world, and they want everything to go their way. They want you to bow to them as much as you want them to bow to you. Everyone else on the highway assumes you're in the way. You're not driving properly in the same way that you think of them. You see, it's inevitable as we experience pride and as sin wells up in us that conflict will occur because there are a conflict of interests that abound in the world. There are workers who are conflicted against owners. The rich are conflicted against the poor. There is a conflict about how we should best use our resources. But then, even within varying groups, there are conflicts. It's not as if every owner bands together against the worker. They fight amongst themselves. It's not as if every worker has his fellow worker's best interest at heart. No. Because... Sin is a me-first mentality. All we need to do to understand this is to look in our families. Now, where would we expect greater harmony and peace than in the family? Where we all have a common goal. Where we're all going along the same road. Where we're all in the same boat together. You can think of many more analogies to use, but essentially the family is a small group that should be harmonious and peaceful. And yet, is it? There is conflict among husband and wife. Conflict among siblings. Conflict between parents and children. All around us, there is a separation that occurs because... Of sin. And Paul then gives us, I think, a very clear and good example of what this looks like in the world. You see, he is describing a hostility to peoples who are divided, Jews and Gentiles. And we see this kind of conflict all around us. The trouble is that the world will not see it the way. 
it really is. The world wants to start solving this problem every place other than with God and with our sin. It wants more education. It wants better politics. But it doesn't look at the root, the root of a lack of peace is sin. If the root of a lack of peace is sin, then the only way we can find peace is in the one who destroys sin. Christ is the one who brings peace. You see, Paul makes a radical statement. He says, only Jesus brings peace. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This is very exclusive in its bounds. Paul would not make a good modern man because he says there is only one answer to this question, and it's Jesus. And to believe Paul, we must then agree about the nature of the problem. If Jesus is the solution, we must understand that the problem for us is sin and that we don't have the solution. Because, after all, if the solution were within us, shouldn't it be that the world should be getting better and better all the time? If the solution were better technology, better education, shouldn't the 20th century have been the greatest of all centuries? And yet, it's amongst the worst, with the most death and cruelty and pain. Because you see, the solution is not with us, it's with Jesus. And so Paul looks out into the congregation at Ephesus and he tells them, You are an example. You are a church body of people who should be at war with one another. There were great cultural walls between them. Before Jesus, they had absolutely no common cause. He says there is a dividing wall of hostility. Now, this word for dividing wall is exceedingly rare. It's only used here in the New Testament and is hardly used in Greek secular literature at all. The one place we find it is in architectural literature. And it describes a barrier or an obstacle that is put up. It is put up to fence people in and fence people out. It is a symbol of hostility. And I think Paul has in his mind's eye a physical example of what this dividing wall looks like. As he's speaking to the Ephesians, what would come to their mind would be the temple In Jerusalem. Now, oftentimes when we speak of the temple, I think what we have in the forefront of our minds is a big building, a building not unlike our church, in which people go in and out. But that's really not what the temple was. The temple was an entire area, a pavilion, if you will. And at the very center of the temple was the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest was permitted to go there only once per year. And outside the Holy of Holies was the holy place, the court of the priests. And only the priests 
could enter there. So imagine in your mind's eye, if we were worshiping and only the priests, only the pastors and the elders were able to come in to this room. But then outside the court of the priests was the court of the men. And so Jewish men could be outside the court of the priests. Imagine if we made all the men go stand in the narthex. That was as far as you could come. And then outside the court of the men was the court of the women. And so I'm sorry, ladies, but you have to stand outside in the Texas heat. But all of that, as difficult as that would be, is no picture of the division between Jews and Gentiles. Because there were these concessive courts. But outside, you had to go down five steps, across a five-foot-thick wall with a gate. And then down 14 more steps until you reach the court of the Gentiles. It was very obvious that the Gentiles were not welcome amongst God's people. As a matter of fact, in the 19th century, two inscriptions were unearthed that were on the temple. And they read as follows. No foreigner, that is Gentile, is to enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death which follows. They did not have seeker-sensitive services at the temple. They're basically saying, if you are caught inside, past this dividing wall, you're going to be put to death. You remember the story of Paul when he was arrested in Jerusalem and he appealed to Caesar? We see this in Acts chapter 21. When the seven days were completed, Luke tells us, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everywhere, everyone against the people and the law of this place. Moreover, he even brings Greeks into the temple. Now they said this because he had walked around town with a Greek man named Trophimus. And the mere rumor that he had brought a Gentile past this dividing wall started a riot. And Paul was arrested. Can you imagine that kind of hatred today? I think you can. Many of you have lived or have gone to a place where it's not fun to be on the wrong side of the tracks, is it? You just know you don't belong. There are divisions and walls. But Paul says that Jesus has broken this wall down. Now I want you to notice the language. Jesus has broken down the wall in his flesh. Now, Paul doesn't say he's made things better. Paul doesn't say that Jesus has made for greater understanding amongst the groups. No. The language is violent. He has broken it down. He has done away with it. He has abolished it. And only Jesus could do this because he did it how? In his flesh. Jesus died to bring peace where walls are. Praise the Lord. Some of you are old enough to remember Ronald Reagan's speech at the Brandenburg Gate in West Berlin. You remember how he called on Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down this wall. 
Some of you were alive and remember with astonishment that that happened a few years later. And the whole world changed, didn't it? You young people can't even imagine a world in which there are two Germanys, not one. You can't even imagine a world in which we are afraid of communism and of nuclear war each and every day. The world changed forever when that wall came down. But not completely, did it? There's still war every year since the walls come down, isn't there? There are still threats of violence. There are still nations who are at each other's throats. It's different, but it's still fundamentally the same. Not so when Jesus breaks down the dividing wall of partition. Jesus has brought down the walls, not only physically, but in our hearts. And he has created for himself a people. He has ended the hostility. You see, Jesus brings the wall down for a purpose. He does it to bring his people together. Jesus brings unity. Now, if we remember, God had done everything to make the Jews different from the other nations around them. They ate different food. They wore different clothing. They trimmed their beards a different way. They had their homes a certain way. Everything that they did, from their clothing to their food to the sacrifices in the temple, all was done to show they were a separate people. God did this to keep them from idolatry. And he did this to point them to their need for a savior. The problem is is that the Jews then began to focus on those differences and to think that was the substance that they were better because of the clothes they wore, that they were better because of the food they ate. But you see, when Jesus Christ came, there was no more need for any of these differences. All of the sacrifices, all of the ceremonies were there to point to Jesus. And so Jesus makes in himself one new man in place of the two. And he does this by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, by doing away with the ceremonial law. And so there is no more need to keep your beard long and untrimmed. You can actually wear cotton blend clothing. And praise be to the Lord, you can enjoy bacon to your heart's content. All of that is gone. Because we have the substance in Jesus. We don't need to look to the shadows. We look to the substance of Jesus. You see, the reality has come now. And so Jesus has abolished everything that separates because all are one in him. He has abolished the law. He has nullified it. He has made it powerless. This is why we do not follow the ceremonial law. Because we have Jesus. And he did this to make a new man. Now, I want you to see what Paul says. He doesn't say that he made the Gentiles Jewish. He doesn't say that he made the Jews like every other nation. He says he made a new third man. The Christian. The church. 
in which all are welcome in Christ because of what Christ has done to break down the barriers and to bring unity in himself. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3. Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. In the letter to the Galatians in which Paul is describing to them how salvation is found by grace alone and faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, that's how we are united, that is how we find peace. Not by papering over our differences, but by seeing what we have in Christ. This makes the church unique in all of human history. Because you see, it is not as if we don't have differences. If you doubt me, take a moment and look around. I see people from different countries, with different skin tones, who speak different languages, who have different hobbies, who raise their families in different ways, who buy different cars. You see, we do not pretend that differences don't exist. But what we have to understand is that it is our unity in Christ that matters above everything else. That is how Jesus takes the two and makes them into one. All of those differences pale in comparison to the commonality we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the peacemaker, the peace bringer. He is the one that unites us. The third thing that Jesus does in bringing peace, Paul describes here in verse 16, that Jesus did this, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus reconciles us to God. Now, Jesus can do this because he solves the problem of sin. Do you remember earlier we spoke about sin being the root cause of separation from God? How can we have a true and lasting peace? We can only have peace with each other if we have peace with God. And so therefore... Paul tells us in verse 16, the second effect of abolishing the law is that we would be reconciled to God. So not only is the ceremonial law abolished and done away with in Christ, but the law as a means of salvation is done away with in Christ. I'm not able to say I'm better than you. I come to God not on the basis of my works and my merit, but on Jesus' works and His merit. Even the condemnation of the law itself has been banished by Christ through His works as He has paid the penalty. And so we are brought together in one body to God. Now Paul reminds us that we were hostile to God. He doesn't mince words. He says, you were enemies. Now, 
I think sometimes when we hear that in the Bible, we think that maybe we treated God the way rival cliques in a high school do each other. We don't go out of our way to help one another. We maybe don't say the best things about one another. The word here for enemy is the enemy who would come and sweep down into your village or your town and destroy everything and murder and kill and pillage. There were hatreds that would last for generation, for centuries, for millennia. It is a true hostility that we had toward God. And Jesus is able to kill that hostility so that it's gone. He doesn't wean us off our hostility to God. He doesn't try and cajole us into being nicer to God. He kills the hostility and makes peace instantly. That's the work of Jesus. He reconciles us to God. Now, what does this mean? Get a picture of this from Matthew's Gospel. The only thing that could do this destruction of hostility against God is the cross. You remember in Matthew's Gospel that there is a curtain that is described in the temple that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. It is several inches thick. And as Jesus is sacrificed on the cross, that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. A physical reminder that the way to God is now open and the hostility is done and we have peace bought by the blood of Christ. Being reconciled to God means a change from hostility to being friendly. It means a reuniting, a bringing of people together. And it is not a compromise. God does not reconcile himself to us in a compromise fashion. He doesn't come to us and say, well... You pick three of the commandments you don't want to keep. And you just go ahead and do whatever you want with that. You give me honor and glory at least every other day. And we'll call it a deal. No. This reconciliation can only happen when God comes to us in Christ. And he restores us to who we were meant to be. The famous preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, speaking about reconciliation. He says, They were consiled before. Now they are reconciled. They are brought back to where they were. Again, that picture of Adam in the garden comes to us. A picture of peace and harmony and love and meaning. And we cannot accomplish this. Only Jesus can. Paul says this in Colossians 1.20, Through Christ, He reconciled to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. We're reconciled to God. We are at peace with God. Because of Jesus. The third and final thing we see from this text is that not only is Jesus the bringer of peace, He is our peace. 
You see, Jesus brought peace that we might possess it. His purpose is clear. He brings us to God. He breaks down the barriers. And only He can do this. And that then is our message to the world. You see, Paul writes in verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. You see, the world is constantly looking for other answers. Again, all you need to do is read newspapers, watch social media, look at the television, and you will see them constantly trying to come up with solutions that will bring peace. If we just had the right way of thinking about it, if we just had the right political structures that could keep everything peaceful. Some will even say if we just take Christian principles and apply them in the world. But the thing is, none of that works. Because if it did, there would have been no need for Jesus to die upon the cross. We must know that it is only by faith in Christ alone that we can have peace. Now, if that is true, then we need to tell everyone that. Don't we? The Bible commands this. It tells us that we are Christ's ambassadors. Jesus told us this. He told us to go and to make disciples of all nations. And this is what Jesus did. Paul tells us this in verse 17. We must be free with that message to those who are near, to those who are far off. We must be always ready to bring the message of peace, that Jesus is our peace. You remember the first message the angels brought when Christ's birth was announced. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. The prophet Isaiah, in describing the one who would come and be the Messiah, called Him the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and what else? The Prince of Peace. This is the message that we are to bring to a world who is in need of peace. But this peace is not just something we bring. We also live with it. Christ is our peace and that is our relationship with Him, with God. Jesus' peace has changed who we are. As a result of the event of reconciliation, we now have a way of approach to God. We now have a relationship with God. Paul says in verse 18, Through Him, that is through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Because Jesus is our peace, we are now both Jews and Gentiles with access to the Father through the Spirit. Jesus' peace is not just something for our past. It is something for us right now. If you are in Christ, you must live as one who is at peace with God. You must live as someone who is at peace with others who are in Christ. This is the definition of who you are to be. It's not an option. It's not a graded scale. It is what Jesus has done to change who you are. Jesus has solved the hostility. 
Jesus has broken down the walls. Jesus has made a new people. Jesus has reconciled us to God. What we must do is accept what He has done. And then we live in His peace. This is the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, the one who breaks down barriers and unites His people. This is the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning for the way in which You remind us that our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope for peace Our only hope for love, our only hope for meaning is the Lord Jesus Christ and all that He has done. Lord, help us this day to be instruments of peace, to tell others of the great work that Jesus has done. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.